1: Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit pronamel.com. This episode is brought to you by Delta Sky Mile's Platinum
0: American Express card. And we here on Savor are what you might call food explorers. It has been our actual job to go to cool places and eat like a lot of the food there. And then talk about it. And then talk about it into (laughs) these microphones, which is a crazy dream job. Yes. Well, if you're like us and willing to travel to seek out new foods to try, you go with the Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card.
2: It's for people like us who are in search of the next food adventure. If you travel, you know. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 2%
1: Hello and welcome to Food Stuff. I'm Annie Reese. And I'm
0: Lauren Vogelbaum, and today we're talking about the tomato. Ah yes, the tomato
1: of ketchup and soup fame. Ha! Ah, and its own fame. Sure. And while it might be incredibly popular in a whole range of products today, it used to be quite feared. Yeah. People were terrified of the tomato. Oh, yeah. And it's gone through a lot of names over its history. The poisonous apple. Love apple. <laughs> the wolf peach. Wolf peach. Yeah, I love it. Tax-ovator. Mm-hmm. Pimp. No, really. they used to go by that. <laughs> it almost makes you want to call the whole thing off. Oh, (laughs) but never fear. We don't call things off here at foodstuff. Also, don't throw tomatoes at us for that or any future terrible jokes, please. The potato tomato thing is going to come back. So sorry
0: about it. (laughs) Uh, So so let's kick this off as we generally do by talking about what is it? Well, what is it, Lauren? It's delicious. It is. The tomato is a fruit that grows on tenderish stems that can be either bushy or vine-like. And yes, according to scientific taxonomy, it is a fruit. It grows from the ovary of a flower and it contains seeds. Fruit. Um, It's actually a berry, technically. Uh, oh. But according to the law, that can be a different story. More on that later. Mm-hmm. The word comes from the Aztecan tomatil, which we mentioned in our Bloody Mary episode, and that's said to come from the root to swell or to plump, meaning something like like the swelling fruit. Makes sense. Sure. And the English spelling of tomato is thought to have been influenced by the word potato, Ah. which originated a bit earlier but around the same time. Okay. There you go. They are a perennial plant, which means for all those gardeners out there that they will live more than one year if you protect them from winter frosts, but they're usually grown as an annual... Due to winter frosts, uh, that is for a single season and then replaced with new seeds or new plants. The bushy varieties are usually what's called determinate tomatoes, which, uh, which fruit all at once, uh, d- during, during their growing season over the course of just a couple weeks. So all of a sudden you go from zero to all, all the effing tomatoes. Oh, really? Yeah. The viney ones, meanwhile, are usually indeterminate tomatoes, which means that they'll bloom and fruit like individual clusters of tomatoes over the course of, of a longer season.
1: I've always wanted to grow tomatoes, but I've been told that that is a tricky one to start with. Yeah. And I have a bad track record.
0: <laughs> with so, plants. Yeah. Yeah.
1: We both kind of have black thumbs or – I don't know. Mine's like greenish black. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. Okay. Well, you've had some success. <laughs> There's potential for success for you. Yeah, yeah. Mine's like Wicked Witch of the West colors. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's okay. I, yeah. Yeah. Uh, sure. <laughs>
0: Throughout, throughout history, um, most tomatoes that people ate were what we now call heirloom. Tomatoes, meaning that they fruit via open pollination, and their seeds generally produce about the same fruit as their parents. Lots of the tomatoes we have in grocery stores today, though, are known as hybrid tomatoes. That is, they were developed from wild strains and must be carefully cross-pollinated in order to produce standardized fruit, uh, or order fruit at all, really. Because uh, if you if you plant seeds from them, they're not guaranteed to grow fruit, let alone a fruit resembling their parent plant. Oh, yeah. Tomatoes, in general, are heckin' popular. They're one of the largest, most lucrative vegetable crops <laughs> in the world. Heavy scare quotes there. They're, they're up there with, like, potatoes, onions, and lettuce, which are big ones. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the global industry was worth $4.2 billion as of 2003. And it's generally an industry that sees increases year over year. So it's probably even bigger now. Yeah, probably. But – This was not always so. No way. Not at all. Mm -mm. Like Annie said earlier, people used to be really scared of them. And we'll get to that right after we take a quick break for a word from our sponsor.
1: This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone.
0: Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing.
1: Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit pronamel.com. This episode is brought to you by Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express Card. And we are what you might call food explorers. We are so lucky that a part of our job involves traveling and trying a lot of the food where we go to travel and then coming back here and telling all of you good listeners about it. And through that, we have discovered some amazing dishes. Sure, yes. Like, I had never understood what
0: poke really could be, and it is delightful. It is stunningly good. hmm Yeah which we had a lot of on our trip to Hawaii. Uh, Another thing from there, Passion Fruit, I now look for in literally every menu
1: that I read. I'm like, yep, that one has Passion Fruit. Going for it. And then all of the moles, and especially the green mole that you heard us talk about recently that we had in Las Vegas. In
0: Vegas, yeah.
1: Oh, Or just steak basements. Who doesn't love a steak basement?
0: Exactly. (laughs) Well, um, if you are like us and you're willing to travel to seek out new foods to try, you go with the Delta Sky Miles Platinum American Express card. It's for people who, like us, are in search of the next food adventure. If you travel, you know.
2: Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give
1: me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at sandiego.org. Funded in part with the City
2: of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
1: And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So the earliest ancestor of the tomato most likely originated in South and Central America, where it descended and evolved from the deadly nightshade plant over millions of years. Mm -hmm. It was small and probably more yellow than red, and the leaves were slightly poisonous. And the small, more yellow than red version was called the pimp, by the way. Still Uh, around. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Around 500 BCE, the Aztecs domesticated the tomato and began using it in their cooking – also sometimes as a hallucinogenic, and the seeds as an aphrodisiac. Yeah, very useful. (laughs) Um, From there, other South and Central American civilizations integrated the tomato into their cuisine. For goodness sakes, we have to talk about Christopher Columbus again. Again. He pops up all the time. He probably ran across tomatoes in 1493. And maybe possibly took them back to Europe. Or their seeds at least. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're not positive. Spanish conquistador Hernan Cortes for sure did, however, and took the seeds he retrieved from the fallen Aztec city of Tenochtitlan to Europe in 1521. By the 1540s, Spain was producing tomatoes. A 1544 Nepalese cookbook contained the first known written reference to the tomato. Author Pietro Andre Mattioli? Classified the tomato as a mandrake and a nightshade. This was not the best thing to be classified as. (laughs) Italian nobility used the plant as a tabletop decoration, believing the tomato to be poisonous.
0: Oh, how edgy and goth.
1: I know. Like,
0: let's, let's take this beautiful mandrake and put it on our table.
1: This poisonous thing. Yeah. Just put it where we eat. Great. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, as it turns out. Yeah, yeah, I know. Ultimately, everything was fine, yes. (laughs) The English also believed that the tomato was poisonous. After the introduction of the plant in 1597, the word tomato first appeared two years earlier in 1595, but it wasn't the most flattering mention. Uh, John Gerard's popular English herbal described the tomato as poisonous and, quote, of rank and stinking savor. Mm. And in part because of this, the tomato earned the nickname Poison Apple.
0: Huh, rank and stinking. I know. I'm I'm personally offended. Tomato vines are actually one of my very favorite scents on the entire planet. It is a lovely smell. Ugh, it's so
1: green and summery. I know. At this point, you're probably wondering why the Europeans thought the tomato was poisonous. They had a couple of reasons, actually. Wealthy Europeans like to eat off these pewter plates— which had a lot of lead. Oh, tomatoes have a lot of acid. Oh. And turns out acid leads to leakage, leads to lead poisoning, leads to death sometimes. So it's like like
0: Flint, Michigan on a platter. That's
1: right beautiful. Yeah. so you can see how they'd make that connection. Okay, sure. Yeah. Poor people didn't have this problem, however, because they weren't eating off the fancy pewter plates. So they would eat tomatoes, particularly in Italy. <laughs> so there's something. We can lay some of the blame on French botanist Joseph Piton de Tonnefort. In 1692, he made what may well be the first botanical classification. Hello. Oh. Previous botanists had recognized the relationship to the Solanaceae family, but Piton disputed the subclass Solanum. Instead, thought they belonged in a new grouping of plants called Lycopersion, which is Greek for wolf peach. <laughs> So fantastic. <laughs> why don't we call it that? I'm going to start. Uh, I, right? Now is the time. <laughs> we're going to start a new trend. It's never too late. Right. The term is similar to the old German term meaning the same and stemmed from the belief that members of the Solanaceae family, the like say Spain or nightshade, could be used to summon werewolves. Huh. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> it's, some of these plants were hallucinogenic. So that's a good reason why people might have thought that. Huh. I cannot tell you how happy I am that we get to talk about wolfsbane and werewolves in this episode.
0: Yeah, I had no idea about that. I, I knew about the nightshade. I didn't know about the werewolves.
1: <laughs> werewolves are always, you know, they're a surprise. They're <laughs> popping up on you. You never see them coming. That's true. Mm-hmm. You really <laughs> should, though, full moon thing. Yeah, but, I mean, come on. Yeah. Pay attention. Come on. Carl Linnaeus, the guy who invented the sixth-level taxonomy, Didn't really help by reversing Piton's classification, but keeping the name Lycoperskian in
0: 1753.
1: Hmm. Yeah. There's a whole website called Tomatoes Are Evil, by the way. I just wanted to throw that out there. Well, is it about how? Yeah, I think it's a joke. I couldn't really tell. I'm pretty sure it's a joke. And it's like (laughs) the tomato ruined... Your whole life, and here's no. how. Uh, <laughs> huh. And just like examples from history of how people have thought negatively about the tomato. But the French might not have had the same hang up because they referred to the tomato as pomme d'amour or love apples. Uh, brief aside here the etymology of this lovely
0: term is debated and delightful, Ooh. and it hinges on the origins of the Italian word for tomato, which is pomodoro. Okay, there are two popular stories for how this name came about. First, that it derives from pom d'oro, or the golden apple. As we said, a lot of the tomatoes at the time were more yellow than red when they were ripe. And adding to this, a popular opera in 17th century Italy was called il pomo d'oro. It was a story of Eris' golden apple, uh, you know, inscribed to the most beautiful Mm -hmm. goddess, caused a lot of problems. Yeah. Yeah. So the phrase was definitely in the public's consciousness at the time. Which makes some people think that, you know, they were like, oh, look, oh, look, it's like a tiny little golden apple. Huh? Yeah, right. Yeah. Cool. But less romantic and perhaps more likely, the name may have derived from moro or fruit of the Moors. Uh, the, the Moorish people were known at the time for introducing exotic foods to mm-hmm. the Mediterranean or to the North Mediterranean, rather. Pomodimoro, for example, was also a term for eggplants around that time. Now, believers in each legend explain the other by saying that English historians later mistranslated the etymology. And believers in both sometimes say that the French mistranslated pomodoro to get pommes d'amour. The the story here goes that a French traveler asked an Italian chef about a particularly excellent dinner, and when the chef started talking about pomodoro, the French dude, or, you know, human, misheard and subbed in words from his own language, pommes d'amour.
1: Oh, (laughs) So it's kind of like he said, she said. Uh huh. Blame the French. Blame the English. Sure.
0: Either way, uh, the tomato really did grow very well in southern and/or provincial France. Where was that extra world are coming from? I don't know. Let's keep going. Uh, it was introduced there via cultural trade with northern Italy. Though supposedly, the tomato was grown in France for a whole generation as like a like a bug repellent, like an ant and mosquito repellent in gardens before anyone was willing to try eating them.
1: That is a very interesting solution to an ant and mosquito problem. <laughs> do tomatoes keep away ant
0: mosquitoes? I'm not sure. I didn't run across that in my research. I, I doubt just...
1: they do. I feel like it would attract them. I think. I think it's more the vines. Oh, okay. Yeah, like the nightshade. It's sure. Just the vines are okay. Yeah. All right. Slowly, Europe started accepting the tomato as a thing that could be eaten without killing you. <laughs> It started appearing in 18th century British soups and more widely on French menus. It made its way to Asia, and it's around this time they started making some headway in the U.S., thanks in part to one Thomas Jefferson. He also He also, up. all the time. I know. In 1710, the first known written mention of the tomato in North America popped up in William Salmon's Biologica. It appeared in a few periodicals in the years following, but was still viewed with suspicion. But as it grew more accepted, a new menace appeared. The green tomato worm. Green tomato worm? That's right. Here's the quote. The tomato in all of our gardens is infested with a very large, thick-bodied green worm with oblique white sterols along its sides and a curved thorn-like horn at the end of its back. That sounds terrifying. Ah! Yes. If this thing weren't like a centimeter
0: long, I'd be really upset.
1: <laughs> it, it can't have been that big, right? I mean... I Well, <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Ralph Waldo Emerson described these worms as an object of much terror. Oh my goodness. I'm looking up a picture right now. <laughs> Another man, Dr. Fuller, decried the worm as being, quote, poisonous as a rattlesnake and that the thing would spit at you and cause immediate swelling. What? Yeah. This sounds like, this it sounds, sounds like something, terrible. like something out of an alien movie. It sounds, I, I would not want to encounter this. That's all I know.
0: All the pictures I'm coming up with are of these incredibly adorable like slightly bulbous green
1: caterpillars. They were terrifying apparently. They're so cute. Are you sure you're just not one of those people that like
0: Well, okay, it looks a little bit terrifying, but it it but like mostly, I mean, this could be a Sanrio character. Okay. It could be a Sanrio character. The head does look like the head of the the queen
1: from Alien a little bit. Okay. And the size what what is the size
0: uh they're they're like they're like palm length, okay,
1: aforementioned Thomas Jefferson felt no such fear at this worm, however, and apparently his daughters and granddaughters liked to use them in things like gumbo, uh, the tomatoes, not the worms yeah, oh gosh, uh <laughs> I'm guessing. Well, yeah, I would assume, because if the worm fear is sweeping the nation, it's keeping people away from tomatoes. Yeah. He felt no fear at either the tomato or the worm. Ah. hmm Uh-huh. In an 1824 speech, Jefferson's son-in-law said that despite being an unknown entity for 10 years, tomatoes were, by the time of the speech, all the rage. Mm. Mm-hmm. Another theory is that in 1830, Colonel Robert Gibbon Johnson decided he was going to eat a basket of tomatoes on the courthouse steps, and a crowd gathered to watch him slowly (laughs) die. (laughs) And when nothing happened, people were like, oh, maybe we can eat this thing. It'll be fine. (laughs) So maybe that was one way that the tomato became more acceptable. Widely accepted. Yes. Yeah.
0: Our buddy Brilliat Savarin wrote in his 1825 book, The Physiology of Taste, that the tomato was a newly popular thing in Paris at the time. He said that it had been almost entirely unknown 15 years previous, much like in America. Uh, he didn't write that part, but I'm just drawing a parallel. He said that at first they were very expensive, but now common in markets. He said it was introduced to Paris by the influx of people from the south of France during the revolution. And uh, he said, quote, Tomatoes are a great blessing to food cookery. They make excellent sauces, which go well with every kind of meat.
1: Ooh. Yeah, that sounds... Which I think is true. Yeah, I agree. Mm -hmm. Thanks in part to canning and to the Civil War's need for canned goods, tomatoes, which were particularly suited for being canned, grew in popularity, culminating in 1897 when Joseph Campbell... Wait, that Campbell? Yep, that Campbell! ...introduced canned tomato soup. Mm -hmm. (sighs) A subject of art and... Much debate, I find. People are very polarized about tomato soup. Oh, yeah. I think that's a whole other episode for sure. Oh, definitely. A couple of years before this, in 1887, a U.S. tariff placed a 10% tax increase on vegetables but not on fruit. Hmm. Tomato importer John Nix was having none of it, and he sued a port in New York, claiming that since tomatoes really were fruit... They should be exempt. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Yet the justice ever seeing the case disagreed, writing that vegetables, quote, usually served at dinner in, with, or after the soup, fish, or meats, which constitute the principal part of the repast, and not like fruits, generally as a dessert, end quote. This, This case went to the Supreme Court.
0: That was a justice of the Supreme Court who said that. And, and this, this tomato is a, is, is legally a vegetable law has influenced other tariff cases. Uh, like there was one from 2013 where an importer of pillows that were shaped like animals argued that they did not have to pay a pillow tariff because their product was actually a stuffed
1: animal. I can see that. That didn't work either. Yeah. (laughs) Nice try though. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, this canning technology led to a dramatic increase In use of and demand for tomatoes, which were too delicate to really travel at the time. Speaking of. Yes. In the 1900s, uh, breeders like
0: Alexander W. Livingston started developing a lot of the surviving strains of what we today call heirloom tomatoes. These folks were part of a larger scientific and or agricultural movement to categorize and perfect plants and animals of all kinds. Uh this is when a lot of the competitive fairs and growing competitions that we still have today, yeah, mostly in rural areas, but kind of kind of all over the place started really popping up. And there was there was a whole to do about competitive pigeon breeding in Vienna. <laughs> Just wanted to throw that in.
1: Oh that yeah. Was the thing.
0: Um <laughs> anyway, a lot of a lot of the tomato strains developed during this time to be the the tastiest or biggest or weirdest or sturdiest or otherwise superlative have been lost, but lots of others were kept and passed down through
1: the generations. And by 1920, I just wanted to throw this in there, hot tomato was slang for an attractive lady, uh, based on the idea of you know like like plumpness,
0: mm-hmm. you know? Uh-huh. Yeah, right. yeah sure. Uh I <laughs> I also want to mention in our notes, uh, sometimes when, when, when Annie has reached a, like a stopping point, she, that doesn't necessarily need to be a stopping point. She, she puts in in big, big block letters, this could probably be expanded upon or something <laughs> like that. And she did this right after the, the tomato hot lady slang <laughs> note. And I just really had a good giggle to myself thinking about specifically the, <laughs> the slang portion being expanded upon. Yes. She didn't
1: mean that. No. <laughs> she meant the scientific part. I did. Sometimes I get excited, you guys. I do love some slang. It's really great, yes.
0: Uh, Anyway, um, circa the 1930s, refrigeration and shipping technologies were improving to the point that large-scale farms could provide produce to wide regions. But most heirloom tomatoes were way too finicky for that. Uh, so agricultural researchers were set to the task of making sturdier, more uniform tomatoes. And that's where our hybrids come from. Uh, these, these strains were developed to be more resistant to disease and to have thicker skins and brighter colors, um, you know, making sure that they wouldn't burst during shipping and that they would look pretty on store shelves. Legend has it that the labs instructed their scientists to think of what would make a tomato a good projectile <laughs> and work on developing traits from there.
1: Which brings us to... Yes. Before we move on from the history, I wanted to add this random factoid because I, w- I was really curious about why in pop culture people throw Rotten Tomatoes at performances or performers they don't like, hence the website of that name. RottenTomatoes.com. Yes. Turns out people have never really thrown tomatoes, not en masse anyway, hmm. but they have thrown peanuts, which is where peanut gallery comes from, oh. eggs. Jelly beans, much later, even at a Beatles concert. Oh no! Yeah, and in the case of Emperor Elagabalus, yeah, venomous snakes, venomous snakes. He threw venomous snakes, but he actually threw them more at the crowd. Oh, and more for his amusement. Oh, he seems like a great guy. Oh, doesn't he? <laughs> I, I can't imagine living under his rule. Oh. He also did it to clear people out if he just oh. wanted to get home more quickly. <laughs> To be super fair, I've had
0: I've had concert experiences when the show is over, like I would definitely throw venomous snakes into the crowd if I could get out of there in like less than 45 minutes. I'm
1: learning a lot about you, Lauren. Sorry about through it. This process. <laughs> <laughs> Lauren wants to get out of there ASAP. She will throw Sometimes, some snakes.
0: Not all the time. I can be patient.
1: <laughs> there is one known documented case of tomatoes being thrown at a performer in the U.S. where the crowds were known as, quote, the rowdiest of all. And audience members showed up with armfuls of foods fit for hurling. Huh. Yes. And this included, at least in this one case, tomatoes, which were cheap Smelly, throwing size, and they made a nice splat on impact. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Here's a snippet from the 1883 New York Times article detailing performer John Ritchie's harrowing experience. A large tomato thrown from the gallery struck him square between the eyes. Then the tomatoes flew thick and fast, and Ritchie fled for the stage door. The door was locked. And he ran the gauntlet for the ticket office through a perfect shower of tomatoes. Huh! Isn't that a lovely image? Just—they <laughs> really painted a good picture there. I can just see this guy running for it, and the door's locked. Tomatoes—just hails flying at him. I, I'm curious. I'm kind of curious about his performance. I know he was trying to do a tightrope thing. Oh. I know, right? That doesn't seem deserving of. I know. That seems like an overreaction. Well, they were the rowdiest audiences Which. of all. So, <laughs> PETA, P E T A, uh, they did encourage the throwing of tomatoes at people wearing fur due to their splat factor and color. And here's a quote from the campaign. Uh, fur wearers be warned, vigilante vegetables are ready to paint the town red. Uh, yeah. But other than that, uh, I'm no never... real scientific
0: ba- or historical basis.
1: Yeah. But that, I mean, that New York Times article, that, that was pretty good. <laughs> I might, I might be like, well, we're going with that from now on. <laughs> <laughs> so that wraps up our history segment. now let's talk about some science. Yes, but first, let's take a quick break,
0: again, for a word from our sponsor.
1: This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone.
0: Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair
1: mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit pronamel.com. This episode is brought to you by Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express Card. And we are what you might call food explorers. We are so lucky that a part of our job involves traveling and trying a lot of the food where we go to travel and then coming back here and telling all of you good listeners about it. And through that, we have discovered some amazing dishes. Sure, yes. Like, I had never understood what poke really could
0: be, and it is delightful. It is stunningly good. hmm Yeah which we had a lot of on our trip to Hawaii. Uh, another thing from there, passion fruit, I now look for in literally every menu that I read. I'm like, yep, that one has passion
1: fruit. Going for it. And then all of the moles, and especially the green mole that you heard us talk about recently that we had from in Las Vegas. In Vegas, yeah. Oh, Or just steak basements. Who doesn't love a steak basement?
0: Exactly. <laughs> well, um, if you are like us and you're willing to travel to seek out new foods to try, you go with the Delta Sky Miles Platinum American Express card. It's for people who, like us, are in search of the next food adventure. If you travel, you know.
2: Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. The Hyundai Santa Fe becomes available early 2024. So get on it now before all the good camping sites are full. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. and we're back thank you sponsor
0: so in in having wrapped up the history portion i want to go into a little bit more history but it's really like the modern history of the tomato okay right. but to talk about that we need to talk about that very first wild tomato species the pimp yes um because it is the ancestor of all of the varieties of tomato that we know and love today uh, properly the solanum pimpinellifolium
1: yeah yeah
0: totally but but it's known to botanists as the pimp uh its fruit is the size of a pea so tiny yeah yeah and really cute um and it still grows wild in peru and ecuador back in the 1940s or so the pimp was one of the species that researchers uh were, were drawing from in developing hardier strains of tomatoes there there was actually a widespread push to genetically map the tomato at the time led by one charles madera rick or C.M. Rick, a biologist who was once referred to as a cross between Charles Darwin and Indiana Jones. Oh, that's excellent. Mm-hmm. Good for him. Right? Uh, his seed-collecting expeditions to South America in the 1940s and 50s, along with advances in genetics in the 60s and 70s, led to our current understanding of the tomato on, on a scientific level. There's there's a tomato genetics research center in his name at UC Davis. Wow. Which I love. And, and if you, if anyone listening is a uh, very serious tomato grower, uh, you, you can get in touch with them and, and uh, get some, get some interesting information about tomato seeds and growing and, uh, and like even like seed exchange kind of programs where like if you want to try growing something or like you want to send some of yours in to get all the research mapped out. It's really cool. Anyway, uh, part of their work has been in mapping tomato species genomes to find out what kind of genetic diversity we're dealing with in, in modern wild and, and cultivated plants. As of 2014, they had sequenced 360 varieties and found that domestication of the tomato has depleted its gene pool in a few, in a few specific areas, including size with, with larger fruit being preferred. And uh, a lot of hybrid tomatoes are, in fact, 100 times larger than that original uh, uh, pimp tomato. And also in the the genetic area of of disease resistance, with a sturdy but but narrow band of of diseases accounted for. So, what does this mean practically? Well, uh, genetic diversity is good.
2: Mm-hmm. It, it allows
0: for happenstance that can create new excellent traits. So, another part of their work is trying to uh to basically undo some of the work that was done in creating and propagating these hybrids. <laughs> Meanwhile, that tough skin that was bred into modern hybrid tomatoes may be good for something. Tires! What? Tires! We're talking about tires again? <laughs> How is this happening? Okay. So one one of the ingredients in rubber tires is a filler that's called carbon black, and it's it's a petroleum-based substance that makes the rubber more durable. It's actually about a third of the makeup of a rubber tire. But since it's made from crude oil, it's not really great for the environment, and its price is at the whim of the global oil industry. And since we've got more vehicles on the road than ever before, the tire industry is looking for replacement solutions. Enter a research team led by Ohio State University. They published a paper in early 2017 about how a mixture of tomato peels for stability and eggshells for microstructure strength can replace a portion of carbon black in rubber tires. That's fantastic. And if this catches on, it, it could help also reduce food waste because the shells from eggs that are cracked before delivery and tomato skins that go unused in the process of making processed sauces could be collected
1: and put to work. I love that. That's so great. Every tire story we've talked about so far has been excellent. <laughs> I hope well, that the tradition continues.
0: We we used to have a we used to have a pizza break and now now we've got a tire break. Yeah.
1: They're both great, we're, yeah, we're evolving the pizza one is obvious, I mean here. obviously, yeah, um, I heard a story on NPR a couple years ago about how most people probably have never had a true heirloom tomato, huh, because in like grocery stores, what you're getting is a very uh yeah like yeah,
0: yeah, they they might have like like five varieties of tomato, but they're all they're all hybrids,
1: yeah, I remember it sounding very dire, it was called the heirloom tomato problem. Oh um, yeah. It made me very sad because I, I probably have had a real one before in my life, but they were saying the taste difference is so spectacular. Yeah. And we'll try to look that up and post it so you yeah. can read about it.
0: Yeah, definitely. And a lot of a lot of the, the kind of marketing buzz around heirloom tomatoes is that is that they have so much more flavor than the hybrid products that we're kind of used to because you know we weren't we weren't genetically selecting for flavor when we were right. developing those tomatoes and so a lot of the proponents of of uh, growing and and consuming heirlooms are saying that like like well it has a flavor and that's why it's a little bit harder to you know it's a little bit more delicate to ship and stuff but yeah but think of the flavor
1: yes the flavor Anyway, <laughs> I think that wraps up tomatoes. yeah, um and and if you're thinking, gee, that
0: was a short episode about something so large and important to the world, not the tomatoes themselves are large, they're relatively small. Yeah. but uh but but yeah, it we we can't go into every tomato product in this episode. No, we but, will do that in oh, individual episodes, yes, a lot,
1: yeah I we've gotten requests for ketchup and I'm dying to talk about it because I don't know if I've mentioned it on here. I've definitely said it to listeners, but I had a very weird and gross ketchup phase when I was a kid where I was just, like, eating ketchup. (laughs) I preferred the ketchup to the fries. Like, I'd get the fries. And just use them as a vehicle? Sometimes I wouldn't even eat them. I just knew it was more acceptable than getting a plate of ketchup. (laughs) So, yes, we will talk about these products specifically uh, at a later date. Mm -hmm. But for now, this brings us to our listener mail segment. yeah. Sophia wrote in about some ancient gin. Ooh. She says, Hello, I listened to your podcast on gin, and I remembered something I learned on the British History podcast that might interest you. Maya Hool, who works on the Ooh, Akavanik Beaker Burial Project. That sounds right. I probably butchered it. I apologize. Uh, was interviewed, and she mentioned that among the grave goods was a drinking vessel, which may have held an early form of gin. Oh. The grave dates back to the Bronze Age in Scotland, and residue found in the vessel indicates the presence of juniper and meadowsweet. Hmm. Obviously, juniper is essential for the making of gin. Meadowsweet, on the other hand, is a flower with honey-like flavor that could have been used to sweeten the gin. As a result of this discovery, and due to the publicity surrounding this project, a distillery has decided to make their own Meadowsweet gin. Oh, lovely. Yeah, it isn't available yet, and it may only have a limited release, but it's exciting to think that we might have an opportunity to taste a variation on a beverage that's over 2,000 years old. Oh, that is exciting. I know. I, I agree wholeheartedly, and I hope that we get the chance to try this gin somehow. Absolutely. Oh, let's be on the lookout for that. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, Erica
0: wrote in in response to our apple pie episode and said, you mentioned the notion of a fried Big Mac to go along with McDonald's OG fried apple pies. I wanted to show you something glorious in case you've never experienced mukbang. This magical Korean trend of vloggers cooking and consuming giant portions of food in one sitting while live streaming. It's amazing and entrancing and therapeutic and so adorable. This girl is one of my faves because she uses words like fave and gets really nuts with recipes. So here's her episode with deep fried Big Macs. And in Japan, so you know it's even better. (laughs) And included a video link which we will uh, share out
1: to you. Yes, and I watched it... Uh... I would never heard of this. Me neither. Or seen it. It was. I will add horrifying. It was like <laughs> just because I can't imagine. She ate like four Big Macs fried, it, and it seem, It seems like it. It seems like a magic trick. Like it seems yeah, like it seems it, impossible, right? And it has like how many calories are in it? She Ooh. calculates it. Oh my goodness! And it's like this thing. Whew. <laughs> She just, she like deep fried the fries, deep fried the four Big Macs and the apple pies, and had like a soft drink of some kind. Anyway, uh, yeah, it, it was, I it never heard of it and I did enjoy it, but there was a part of me that was like screaming on the inside. So, yeah, check that out. Yeah, please enjoy. Uh, Meanwhile, if you
0: want to let us know about anything that you think would delight or horrify us, uh, you can get in touch and let us do so.
1: Yes. um, You can get in touch and let us do so? You absolutely can let us do so. Cool. (laughs) We have an email address. It is foodstuff at howstuffworks.com.
0: We are also available on social media. On Instagram, we are at foodstuff. On Facebook and Twitter, we are hsw. You can find us. I've got faith in you. Uh, we hope to hear from you, and we hope that lots more good things are coming your way. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel.
1: Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone.
0: Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash,
1: you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit pronamel.com.
2: Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms.